You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which features one of our British partners uh, an amazing story from uh, the war in Afghanistan. We'll get to that in just a moment. But a few reminders, as always, please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. And don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate that percentage back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Also works really well on your smartphone, directs you right to the app so all of your credit card information is saved, really user-friendly and convenient, and the easiest way for you to support veterans all throughout America just by doing some Amazon shopping. Don't forget about our Apple reviews. Please continue to leave them. Uh, these are helping us grow and getting us to crack the top 100 Apple podcasts. You know, if you Google top military podcasts, uh, unfortunately, we are like on page three or page four. Uh, but our audience is page one. And so we have the largest audience or one of the largest audiences when it comes to military podcasts. But because of the way the algorithm works on Apple, they don't know about us because we don't have enough reviews. So we need your help. Leave a short review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show and help grow this Hazard Ground community. And we certainly appreciate everything you guys have done for us as we approach coming up here on year five of the Hazard Ground podcast. This has been an amazing ride. And we certainly thank you guys for being part of this journey with us. Okay, on to this week's story featuring an aviator from the British Army Air Corps. She is a distinguished flying cross recipient for her actions on 3 December 2013 when flying a medic medevac mission in Afghanistan. She braved enemy small arms and rocket fire to save a U.S. Marine and an Afghan mother from certain death on the battlefield. She is Lieutenant Colonel Laurel Nicholson joining us on the hazard ground. Laurel, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, well, Obviously, you are in England, so you are what six hours ahead now. It's 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 supper time where you are. <laughs> I'm glad you called it supper and not tea time, which is how they refer to it up north. But it's <laughs> uh, it's just gone five o'clock my time. All right, good. Well, see, I'm I'm trying to uh, speak the language. I mentioned earlier about having a pint, so now we're having supper as well. So we, we are we are right on the same page <laughs> right at the outset here. We are. <laughs> Um, so really simply, you know, kind of just as one of our partners here, uh, you know, we've told stories all about the American military, but we've done the Afga- uh, the Australian military as well. Um, we have told some other stories from the British military, including Brian Wood, MC, who uh, for his actions in Iraq. And uh, you may be familiar with that story, but excited to hear about yours. So uh, we start at the beginning always and tell us why and how you got into the uh, to the British military. Okay. Um, Well, I got interested in the army when I was about 14 or 15 years old. Um, I had two cousins who had joined. And at that age, I was a bit of a tomboy growing up. And I didn't fancy the idea of sitting in an office or working behind a desk. And so I looked at what they were doing. And it sounded really from school, aged about 17, I did my officer selection, um, failed it dismally, as was nowhere near confident enough. Um, but that didn't deter me. I went to university, joined the University Officer Training Corps at Birmingham, um, and that really built up my, my confidence. I attempted the officer selection in my second year at university, 
um, passed it with a far better um, sort of degree of quality. Um, I managed to get sponsorship for my final year um, and then went to Santos to start my officer training shortly after leaving uni. So when did you officially sign up? I mean, at four years, I think we're roughly close to the same age or probably older than you. You look very young. Don't, 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 don't mistake me saying that you, you're an older <laughs> female. But I mean, you're a lieutenant colonel. I'm a lieutenant colonel. So I assume that we're somewhere in the same age. And I only ask this because this was post 9-11 you signed up, obviously, correct? No, I joined in 98. Okay, so you joined yeah. a year before I did. So, okay, so the, yeah. I, I guess it's Younger different. than I look. Yeah. <laughs> or well, older than I look, obviously, yeah. Doing a very good job. <laughs> well, so I know it's not America, but the, the natural question is, is what was your reaction when 9-11 kicked off then? When 9-11 happened, what was the reaction in Britain? Um, it, shock, um, I guess. I remember distinctly I was with my squadron. We were over at... Um, the Jersey Air Show because our squadron had an affiliation with Jersey. We used to go over for a week and do some work with um, cadet forces over there as well as taking part in a, a static display with the Lynx helicopter. And I remember we were all up at the Jersey airfield um, thinking about making plans to make home, uh, to get home back to um, the mainland and then saw this breaking on the news um, and just utter astonishment as to what was happening and then thinking that means all the airspace is surely going to shut. Are we actually going to be able to get back? Are we going to be stuck here on Jersey, um, which is over in the, the Channel Islands, for those who, who don't know, just off the north coast of France. Um, and then shortly after that, um, I actually went out to Kabul as part of, we called it Opfingal in the United Kingdom. I went out with 16 Air Assault Brigade as their watchkeeper. Um, so I was out there only for about a couple of months. It was just a short period. Um, but it was yeah, sort of jumping straight into the, the deep end for me as a, a very junior officer at that stage. I mean, in America, a lot of people we talked to knew, you know, we were going to war. Did you guys in England think that you guys would be involved at some point? Was that almost like a certainty for you? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, sort of historically, certainly over the last 20 years, you know, sort of UK and America okay. have been aligned with with most um, most operations that that have happened over that time. So I think there was a, a fair assumption that that yes, we would start to ramp up and and then get involved ourselves. Yeah, and I wonder. I think it's it's fair to ask. I mean, as much as we were partners, I mean, do you feel like it's strange that you had to go risk your life for something that didn't affect your country directly at that point in time? That is. No, I was about 22 or 23 years old. I can't remember now. Um, it would have been about, about, no, 24 at the time. Um, and no, it didn't even question it at that age. It was just something exciting. It was going away on my first operation. Um, and I was pleased to be involved with it. So all in total, how many deployments either to Iraq or Afghanistan did you end up doing? Um, Afghanistan is that first one to Fingal, and then I did four flying tours with the Chinook Force, okay. uh, and then I did one to Iraq as well. So uh, in 2005, if I recall correctly, it kind of gets personal for um, for those in England. It was the bus bombing, uh, I think, in London was 2005, correct? I don't know if that's uh, 100% accurate. Yeah, it would have been about that time, yeah. Um, but did that change any of the scope for anybody realizing that, hey, now terrorism has come to, to England and and now we're in this thing for real, so to speak, or it didn't matter? Um, 
I think there's always been an awareness um, ever since 9-11 that what happens in one country um, when it's carried out by that particular sort of um, group of individuals is always something that could happen to us. And obviously, we've been heavily involved with um, all the troubles that went on in Northern Ireland beforehand. So sure. terrorism wasn't something that was new to us. Um, and it was, yeah, sort of there. And I guess with Iraq as well, having been involved with the first Iraq war, um, for them to need to go out again, um, being part of Operation Freedom, um, I, I guess, was was not totally unexpected as well. All right. So you originally joined the British Army. Um, how and when do you make your transition into the British Air Force? So I spent 11 years with the Army Air Corps um, and then decided to transfer to the Air Force in 2009. Um, and I spent five years with them before coming back to the Army um, right at the beginning, almost to the day, um, sort of five years in 2014. Yeah. Um, but it was it was unusual, I guess, for somebody in my circumstances to transfer because the, it has happened historically with a few pilots who had decided that um, instead of wanting to, to move up the career ladder with the Army Air Corps, that they actually just wanted to stay in a cockpit and keep flying, which was why we, we lost a few individuals. For me, it was different. It was more because the the flying that I had done up to that time with the Army had been great fun. I'd been over to Belize, spent six months over there flying links. Um, I had spent a couple of months in Kenya. I'd done some great exercises around the UK uh, and had been across to to do that tour in Iraq and in Kabul. But, but those two tours were both ground tours. Um, and I had picked up promotion to major and I looked at it and I thought, well, unless I get command of the right squadron, then potentially I finish my army career having never flown on operations. <laughs> so... Friends of mine who were transferring kept on sticking post-its on my computer with the uh, the number of the, the manning officer who took her, took her charge of the um, Air Force Rotary. Um, and I just thought, do you know what? I'll just give them a call and see what might be available. Um, and they said, yeah, we can give you Chinooks, we can give you Afghanistan. So I was very sad to leave the army, um, but it was you know, a question mark as to what would happen if I stayed. Right. Whereas by transferring, I knew that I was going to get the the operational flying guaranteed. So, um, so I, I jumped across, yeah, well, and no regrets whatsoever. I had a great time. Was it one of those things for you? Because we, we see this a lot from, you know, the American military folks. You know, it, it's it's just sort of like that that chance to prove yourself. You know, like all of your other pilots were wearing a badge, or you had known that they had flown in combat operations and everything else that sort of kept pushing you towards that? Was it anything of that nature? Because we have that in the military. You know, we have our infantryman badge and our combat infantryman badge, things of that nature, where you know that you've sort of been christened within the organization once you get one. Yeah, I suppose not so much in terms of wanting to prove myself to other people, but more to myself. And, uh, you know, you go through so much training during your military career and, I was more, I guess, curious as to how I would actually react being put in that sort of environment, um, but also just not wanting all that training to go to waste. Um, so it was definitely something that I wanted to be involved in and be part of. All right. So you had those deployments that you said were all ground deployments. When is your first deployment where you get to fly come? Uh, so that was 2010. Okay. Yeah. The, the way we, um, and then they just followed in, in fairly quick succession. We had 
uh, five flights on the Chinook Force who would rotate round and go out to Camp Bastion and become 1310 flight, as it was called out there. And it was just a, an annual cycle. So initially, we went out for about sort of three months at a time. Um, and then that then got extended to four months. So you had a slightly longer gap in between. Um, but then you were, you were out there for longer. How many but times? Much shorter than the American tours where, well, where you go out for yeah, no. a year at a time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, remind me, please. But uh, <laughs> how how many of these deployments were you actually integrated with American forces, or you were solely with British forces? Uh, all of them were integrated. Okay. Not so much in terms of inserting American troops, um, but certainly for the whole period, always covering Helmand Province, of which there were American troops um, and various other countries. And there were joint operations that took place, um, but also doing the the MERT, which was the the medevac, whereas you guys had Pedro, which predominantly dealt with the Americans for the the more seriously wounded. Then that always came to to us with MERT on the Chinook Force. Gotcha. Um, you can be candid in this question. I don't mind the answer. How difficult was it to work with Americans? We're kind of a pain in the ass at times. I'm not going to lie. You're not that bad. You're okay. <laughs> But like, you know, that sort of assimilation, it went seamlessly for you guys, you know, with, with you know, other foreign entities, other foreign forces that you were working with. Because, again, it was a, it was you guys, it was the, you know, Australians as well. There were French there. I mean, we, you know, it was a coalition deal. So um, it was was it were there any struggles or anything that you can remember sort of integrating with with other countries? No, not from my perspective. When I was there, um, it was, you know, bear in mind that. I only went out for the first time in 2010. So by right. then, everything was very much at a, a steady state. And I wasn't working at all in any headquarters, um, which involved work with American troops. So the only really sort of direct headquarters style working that I had was part of our um, staff course when, when we were all baby majors and we, we went out to Fort Leavenworth. Um, and the only thing I really came away was thinking, you guys love your PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is PowerPointed to death. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's very astute of you. Uh, and I'm sorry that – was that your first trip to America? Because if it was, I'm sorry that all you got to see was uh, – was No, it wasn't. Okay. All right. Good. Thank God. Uh, it, it doesn't represent us the best. Sorry to the people of Missouri. Uh, but yes, we do love our PowerPoint. Um, at this point in my career, uh, I have been fortunate enough to attain enough rank where I can force somebody else to do that. I can Which tell you like I, I know what I want it to look like. And can you make it do this, this, and this? And I had like a lieutenant who could do it all for me. I'm like, yeah, you're the best. Great, because I'm not even bothering with this. So, <laughs> yeah, we do love our PowerPoint. Um, okay, so after the 2010 deployment, another one happens in 2011? Yeah, 2011, 2012, and then the last one in 2013. I only ask about the 2011 one because I'm curious if you where you were when Osama bin Laden was killed. Uh. Do you know what? Now I can't remember if I was out in theatre or whether I was back in the UK. I was always out there over the summer. Uh, well, and I can't May. recall exactly. I was probably out there then. Yeah. I, I only because I just remember when when that happened that morning, you know, of course, we were seven, eight hours ahead of the East Coast in the United States. Um, <laughs> my phone just started ringing like nonstop when, when the news broke. Uh, so it was six o'clock in the morning, midnight, you know, on the East Coast. In America, and uh, everyone's like, "Are you coming home? Are you coming home? Are you coming home?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm I'm in Iraq. You got killed in Pakistan. Why would I be going anywhere?" Like, <laughs> but everybody thought that that was the case. So I was just kind of curious if you had heard the same thing. 
No, no, not from my perspective. Yeah, okay. Um, anything of note in those uh, first three deployments prior to 2013 um, from a, you know, uh, troops in contact sort of standpoint, um, you know, did you have to fire your weapon at the enemy? I mean, were you guys ever, you know, being close to being shot down, things of that nature? Uh, there's one particular incident that sticks in my mind. When I was flying, um, this is when I was still a, a pilot, so not yet a, an aircraft commander on Chinook, because that took a, a while to attain for, for most of us. Um, and flying with a, a guy called John Singh, um, who was aircraft commander. And we had just inserted the BRF, which was the Brigade Recce Force, uh, into a location on a deliberate operation, so right in the green zone within Helmand. And as we were operating as a, a two-ship on Chinooks with Apache in the overhead, and as we were just flying in, we went over the top of a compound, and one of the crewmen called that he had seen a, a gunman standing on the roof. And as soon as we touched down, we started unloading and then pretty much immediately came under fire. And when you're hit in a helicopter, it sounds like someone's put a metal waste paper basket on your head and has hit it with a hammer. It's loud. And that's despite the fact that you've got a helmet on and you've got the engines and the rotors making all the noise. Um, and there were two or three sounds like that. Um, so we were sort of checking inside and just waiting for the cue from the crewman to say ramp up, which basically means that you're clear to depart because you've obviously got to wait until everyone has got off. You can't just leave half a half a team on the ground. And as we then lifted, John, about a second later, said, it's not flying properly. I can't fly this thing. Um, and that was probably the, the only time in, in my career where I've had a a oh, crap moment, you know, this is this is where it all suddenly starts to get real. Uh, and thinking, okay, well, this isn't a good situation. And this, this goes through in, in a matter of seconds of it not being a good situation because there's quite a heavy contact going on on the ground. Um, and we're for RAF personnel who aren't necessarily trained as infantiers and um, just wondering what's going to happen. Um and you wonder about sort of what aspects of your training you're going to have to call upon. But we were still flying um, and just gradually managed to to get up into the, the air and sort of clear the, the dust cloud. Um, and John was sort of just doing the best job he could to try and get us away. Um, but his flying control just wasn't moving forward enough. So we're in that uncomfortable situation where we were quite high by this stage, probably about sort of 200 feet and flying at about 30 or 40 knots, which is a bit like driving through an ambush at 10 miles an hour. <laughs> it's just not a good place or position to be and you're just a, a sitting target essentially in a helicopter. So we tried to resolve that and also tried to work out what was wrong with the aircraft. And there was a um, utility hydraulics caption but that didn't relate to what we were experiencing because it felt like a flight hydraulics um, issue. So we kept on trying to, to start the APU generator to see if we could clear it, and none of that was having any effect. So we thought, okay, well, let's just see if we can get out of the green zone, which we did. Um, and John was by this time pushing forward on the site click with both hands, and, and I was operating the, the collective, so essentially the, sort of the, the power lever. 
Uh, and we managed to get the height down a bit. We managed to get a little bit more forward speed, but not much. And then we made it out of the green zone, got towards the desert area and thought, OK, well, let's see if we can limp a bit further and make it to a patrol base. And we'd called to one of the Apache who'd peeled off. He was starting to give us a bit of overhead protection. So that made us feel slightly more comfortable. Um, and eventually managed to land just outside a British patrol base. Um, and I must say, we executed the most perfect landing with John flying with one control, me flying the other. But what we didn't see until we came right down to the ground was the great big ditch that was right in front of us. Um, and we didn't have any brakes because the utility hydraulics had gone. So we rolled forward, which actually um, severed off the undercarriage underneath. Um, but then we, we shut down and then it, it felt like ages, but it was probably only about a minute afterwards. The other Chinook, our playmate, came and landed next to us. Um, and so we sort of cleared all the um, secret radios and bits and pieces and made sure we had all our kit with us us and walked across to the other aircraft um got on the back of that and then they flew us home uh and they managed to get the aircraft back eventually they the engineers went and, and low loaded it back to bastion um and i think it got repaired about six months later or something wow. um but that that was the moment when i think you know that's the closest i've come to i think i might die today yeah it was uh it was an interesting day. It's always amazing to me, you know, pilots, how quickly they can process information, um, you know, because, again, th there's one constant force working against you. Like, if my car on the road goes kaput or something happens that makes a weird noise, even if, theoretically, even if I have no brakes, I could just stop putting on the gas and the car will eventually slow down. The problem with an aircraft is that gravity is always pulling down. If everything stops, it is. You, you become a lawn dart, um, which is not a favorable situation. Uh, you know, how it's just it's amazing to me how often you can train for those moments and still not always be able to diagnose exactly what goes on and how quickly you have to process information because a matter of seconds could be everything for you guys up there. Yeah, it would, we would never have been able to diagnose what was wrong because it wasn't actually – a, a sort of an academic mechanical fault. Um, what had happened is that a round had come through underneath John's feet, um, about a, a foot underneath where he was sitting, which is where the control rods run, which connect the cyclic up to the um, the rotor head. And it had severed one. So there was actually just a physical blockage. Um, so oh, there was wow. no way that we, we, we could, you know, there was nothing to prepare you for that sort of thing. Um, we just dealt with it the best we could. Um, well, it's a survival situation. Obviously safe. <laughs> well done. Uh, training comes in handy. All right, so let's uh, yeah. let's fast forward to December of 2013. Um, okay. The day before the 3rd of December, the 2nd of December, uh, do you know that you're going out on a mission? Like, are you guys on a point where you're a standby for medevac? I mean, kind of give me the, the background of the mission in that deployment itself in Afghanistan. Sure. Well, we were actually on duty. So we used to cover the duty for 24 hours at a time. And so we had started at eight o'clock um, the previous day and were due to actually hand over duty the morning of the event. Um, so we were just starting to pack up our things and um, had gone out to the aircraft to make sure it was working OK, ready for the oncoming crew. Um, and we're just sorting out, you know, sort of general bits and pieces waiting for them to arrive. And then the phone rang, um, which is a, and it, there was a specific telephone in the accommodation we were in. 
so what would then happen is the three of us, two pilots and one of the crewmen would run straight out to the aircraft to get it up um, started and up and running. And the, the other crewman would stay to answer the telephone and get just the, the bare details as to exactly what it was and, and where we were headed. Um, and then he'd come out and join us, by which stage we might have been able to get some more information over the radio as to exactly where we were going. Um, so that's exactly what happened in this instance. And uh, we got the information and it was a, a grid which was, it was just to the south of Bastion, about sort of 10 miles to the south. And there was an American soldier who had a, a gunshot wound to his abdomen. Um, and that's pretty much all the information we had. Um, so we went, um, got there in you know pretty short time. It only used to take about seven minutes to get airborne from actually getting the call. Um, and it was one of the American helicopters was in the overhead to provide us with overwatch. So we waited for clearance for him um, or from him rather, for us to, to go in, because obviously we've got to make sure that he's in a position to provide covering fire if it's required. Um, and then we got the go-ahead and then descended down to low level, because all this time we're just orbiting up at height to keep ourselves safe, and flew in um, to the the grid that, that we had. Um, Was it an area quite, you were uh, familiar with at this point in time? Uh, familiar with them that we'd flown over it a lot right. um, just because it was in between us and the, the green zone and a lot of the, the patrol bases, um, but not somewhere specific that we had necessarily taken any does, notice of. Does that give you a lot of comfort? At least you know the quickest route from where, you're, where you are to where you're going or you've flown over it. You can look down and sort of see what's, what's underneath you? No, not really, okay. because so much of the the geography out there is um Looks the you, know, same. <laughs> you get two sorts it's either the desert or it's or it's the green zone so you've got um and for your listeners you might not know the green zone is essentially it's green because it literally is green because it's close to the river that's running through it so it's all the the land that's being cultivated um so that meant a lot of times so if you're landing on there it might be slightly less dusty um but really you're just talking about a landscape which is either flatland or with a a scattering of um, buildings or um, mud compounds or something. And this was a desert area with some mud compounds. Um, so, no, I mean, all we're going on is a grid. And then once we're down at low level, you're flying towards that grid. You're solely reliant on GPS at that point, And you're just looking for the smoke, which the ground troops would pop. And as soon as you see the smoke, you, you just go straight to it and, and land on as, as quickly as you can. Okay, so and I assume that part, as you just announced, it all went right to plan, right? Well, it, at the time, in the front, we thought it had gone to plan. Um, subsequently, afterwards, when we got back in the debrief, we found out that um, Dan, who was the, the crewman down the back, had seen um, an RPG fly past the back of the tail. Oh. Thankfully, it had missed. And so he hadn't thought to mention it because he knew that we were working pretty hard up front and... Well, then it's, you know, it's it's happened. It's gone. It's no longer a factor. Um, that's the good things about RPG. <laughs> they don't turn around and sort of aim for your aircraft, which is a, a bonus. Um, so we got on the ground. And as soon as we landed on the, the force protection, so we'd have four um, airmen from the RAF regiment who are trained um, similar to, to infantry. And they would run off the back to provide protection for the casualty coming on. 
um, and the four medics that we have would stay on board the aircraft. But as soon as they got off the back, they came under fire um, to the back of the aircraft. And then shortly afterwards, we got more incoming fire coming in from our um, sort of one, two o'clock position, which the crewman, um, Perks, who was up the front, then engaged with his weapon um, and put down quite a significant amount of rounds, which suppressed the fire from that location. So that was a good thing. Um, and again, we're just sort of waiting for the call that the, the casualty was on board, um, which, uh, you know, probably only took about a minute. And then we were up and away. So we thought, okay, you know, that was a little bit busy, um, but out of it safely and got back to Camp Bastion and, and took the, the soldier to the hospital there and then repositioned back to the landing site, refueled, and, you know, did a quick check on the refuel point for, for damage and thought, okay, well, that's it now. Well, now we can go land back on and, and shut down and hand over to the, the next crew. But as we were refueling, the radio sparked into life again um, and we were told that there was another um, casualty. In fact, it was multiple casualties to go and pick up um, and we checked the grid and it was um, pretty much the, the same position. Um, but this time it was civilian casualties. Uh, and so we thought, OK, sort of a quick check of everybody thinking we kind of know what we're going into this time. Um, but obviously everyone good to go and took off and went in again. And this time going in, it seems well, it was sort of a lot quieter. We landed on and, and it was it was OK. There was there was no contact. So we thought, right. Well, that's a that's a good thing, um, and we got the casualties on, which was a um, an Afghan woman with some children who uh, we think had possibly been caught in some crossfire, not from where we had been, because she was about they must have been about sort of a k or two to the slightly off to the north, um, but obviously been caught up in some sort of incident and had been travelling in a taxi. So we got them on board and then went to depart. And as we departed, still at low level at this point, um, came under more fire, which hit the aircraft. Um, and then Perks, who was the, the crewman up front, suddenly yelled that he was hit. Um, and that's, the, the I guess, the first time in my career when I probably have a, a sinking feeling, because up until that point, we'd conducted multiple casualty evacuations, um, but you don't expect it to be one of your own. Thankfully, um, it was only fairly superficial for him. And, and what has happened is that on the, the floor of the aircraft, there's armoured plating, um, as there is round the sides as well, in the, the back in the cabin. But there was a small gap between two of these plates. And the round where it had gone in had found the gap. Um, thankfully, oh, had been caught enough. So it was just, it splintered and essentially it was shrapnel. Um, that had caught him on the leg, but still, you know, hot and sharp and would have hurt him like hell. Um, but I think he was all right because you know, we've got four medics on board and one of them sort of pretty much jumped on top of him, ripped his trousers off, had a look and, and managed to, to deal with it. So, yeah, he was he was OK, um, which was a good thing. Um, so we continued back to the hospital and um, and you know, it's a, a short transit because it was pretty close to Bastion and, and then got the, the civilian casualties off into the hospital as well.
So the the aircraft through all the fire didn't sustain too much damage, or was it, it was something that were similar to the last incident where you had to diagnose a problem in flight? No, it was nowhere near as bad. It, we had, uh, I think, from memory, it was about three, three or four rounds that had impacted the aircraft, um, but nothing that was detrimental to any of the flying systems, thankfully. So the aircraft was still operating perfectly well. Um, what happened to uh, the American sergeant who you originally dropped off? I don't know. Oh, um, really? Do you know, um, some people used to, or some of the Russian crews would um, make a point of going to check on what did happen to casualties that had been dropped off. Um, I didn't personally. Um, I sort of like to have the hopeful optimism that everyone always made it through, having made it to the hospital. Wow. Um, what, like, as far as people that you rescued to this point, did you, did you keep track of how many it was? No. Um, no, I didn't. It was much, uh, that final tour, it was a, a lot less. The, the first tour that I went on, um, whenever we covered the duty, which would come around once a week, you would get anywhere between four or six shouts a day. And I say a day within a 24-hour period, so throughout the, the day and the night. And some of those might be single, some of them might be multiple casualties. Um, they were always severe. Those were the ones that Chinook got called to. So um, it almost got to the stage where if they were just missing a limb, you kind of thought, lucky bloke, because sometimes it was multiple, triple amputees. Um and often sort of quite severe gunshot wounds as well. And um, not everybody made it back to the hospital, unfortunately, um, which is always a pretty depressing thing when you find out that that's happened on the transit back to the hospital. Um, but those, yeah, as I say, really busy times. But in that last tour, patrolling had pretty much ceased on the ground because this was coming down to the, the drawdown points. Um, so normally on during that time on a 24-hour period, Sometimes you wouldn't get any call outs. Um, sometimes you might you might get one or two. Um, so it had definitely quietened down a lot. But as to, regards the the total number, I, I really haven't kept track. So don't did, know. Did you realize? You. <laughs> did you realize like in that day on on December third, twenty thirteen, like how crazy it was? Like after you finally got back, did you re- kind of take a moment to to reflect and go? I mean. I'm lucky to even be alive right now. Um, no, it was more. I, I, rem- <laughs> I remember when we got to the HLS at the hospital, um, and I think it was after the second one. It might have been the first. I can't remember. I just remember Max, who was the the other pilot that I was flying with. I remember we sort of we landed on and we looked at each other, and you do that sort of nervous giggle of that was that was a bit hairy. Um, and then we went after we had actually shut down after the the whole mission was over. Um, we went through an extensive debrief, but, but everyone was okay, um, thankfully. It, it was, I mean, for me, it was a far less um, daunting is not the right word, but it it had less of an impact on me mentally, I suppose, than the the first incident that I mentioned when I was flying with, with John Singh, um, which was the time when I actually thought, yeah, th- this this might be it. Um, with the, the second one, 
it was more just yeah that was close but we're all still here so so that's all right now you ended up being awarded the distinguished flying cross uh for your efforts that day how does that whole thing come about and sort of your reaction to it uh well i i knew nothing about it until 2015 um because they they would normally do the honors and awards on a six-monthly basis but because of Afghanistan drawing down and Herrick coming to an end, I think they had done the last batch at the, the annual point as opposed to the six-monthly point. Um, so it's a great, great surprise um, and enormous privilege as well and really sort of humbling to get it. Um, but I, I, I must admit, I sort of, I don't find it, it's not that I describe it as strange, but it's, it's ironic how some of these things come about because, you know, ultimately we, we fly as a, the, from the air crew side, we're a crew of four. And in terms of the MERT as a whole, we become a crew of 12. And yet the the aviation awards only go to the, the aircraft commander. Um, and Max, who I was flying with, he was also an aircraft commander. And we had been doing sort of alternate week on, week off as to who was in command. So, you know, quite possibly it could have been him in command that day and he would have got it and I wouldn't. So um, it was as a result of that, it was hugely important to me when um, I went to Windsor Castle to receive my award, which um, I was hugely privileged. It was the Queen who was actually um, giving it to me, which was, I've never felt so nervous in all my life when I, (laughs) yeah, when I was actually speaking to her. Um, but but to me, you get a certain amount of invitations, and to me, it was hugely important that my crew were there with me because I, it's something that we were all in. We all operated. We all, you know, had a responsibility for the aircraft and the other passengers in it, and it was a, a team effort. Um, and I I think it's slightly unfair in the way that it's only me that has got the recognition from that particular day. Um, you said you were nervous uh, with the Queen. What's, what's that whole ceremony like? Is it a long, drawn-out thing, or is it just quick handshake and see you? No, it was quite – well, I mean, it was long because there were so many other people getting awards. Gotcha. Um, and she – so you have – it's almost like a, a congregation in a, a church where all the, the friends and family are sitting, and she's at the front with all the, the other dignitaries and senior officers. And for us as recipients, we're in a, a side corridor. I say corridor. It's huge. It's Windsor Castle, but it's essentially a, a side room. And so we were all waiting in line, and there must have been, I think, about sort of 50 of us or something that day. And I was the penultimate person. So for probably about an hour's period, we were just all kind of waiting. Um and so it was only at the last moment when I was getting closer up towards the, the doorway going through that I actually saw the Queen. And even though I knew it was the Queen who was handing out the, the medals that day, you then go, oh, my word, it's the Queen. <laughs> um, and then went out to, to speak to her. Um, and actually somebody had told her from the, the palace that my crew was there, um, which was lovely. So she spoke about them. She also asked me um, about my career because I was back with the army by this stage. And so we spoke about the squadron that I was going to take over command of. Um, and 
I really can't remember what else. My my parents, who had managed to get extra tickets, um, said that, oh, she spoke to you for ages, but I'm sure she didn't speak to me longer <laughs> than anyone else. It was just my mum's perception. Um, and then you, you go from there through into another side room. And because we were, um, me and this other girl, uh, were the last two to go through, we were told to just wait there because the Queen was then going to walk down through the, the congregation and an exit so we waited and then I found out afterwards that on her way down she stopped to talk to to my um three crew members which was great because she apparently never speaks to anybody or stops to talk to anybody um and then when she came round into the corridor she she then stopped again and said that she had spoken to them um which was great because then you know I really felt that that they had their part in that day as well so that made it very special that's awesome um what's What's more, I guess, challenging is the word I want to go with, being the actual pilot or being the flight commander? Uh, well, when you say flight commander, you might use a different terminology okay. to how we... Well, you said we you were the flight commander on this particular flight, right? Uh, aircraft commander. Air, aircraft commander, I'm sorry. Yeah. Aircraft commander. So, all right, well, is there a difference between the pilot and the aircraft commander? Um. Sometimes, sometimes you might just have both people actually qualified as aircraft commanders, but one of them, you can only have one person actually uh, physically in charge. Otherwise, you'd have a very weird cockpit gradient of two people trying to take trying to take control. Um, so, so the aircraft commander takes overall responsibility for the aircraft and its occupants. The pilot often might just be taking on handling responsibility. Um, but the, the difference between the two qualifications is that when you start out on a new aircraft type, um, you will initially just be qualified as a pilot or limited combat ready. Right. And then after you've built up experience and completed a number of different training tasks and different sort of mission profiles and sorties, then you will do your aircraft commander's check or aircraft captain, some people would call it, um, and then you become a, an aircraft captain. What is uh, some of the most, you know, difficult things for you about being a pilot in general? Is there one skill in particular that you were weaker at than others? Going through my pilot's course, um, no one thing in particular. I remember I did fail a, a navigation sortie one day, which was my navigation check, um, which threw me off balance because up until then I hadn't had any problems at all. And then failed this check ride. Um, and then the process is you know, get put on a, it's called an air warning. Um, and so you get put onto the air warning system, which sounds um, quite foreboding. And at the time it felt foreboding, but actually it's just a mechanism that they have so that they can then give you an extra couple of training sorties before you do the check again. Um, so that happened to me, but, but you're aware of people who've gone onto air warning one, air warning two, and then, if they don't pass air warning three check ride, then that's that's it. They're off the program. Um, so I had a bit of a, a sort of a falter at that stage, but then after that, everything was fine. Um, but then when I transferred from the army to the air force, um, we had to pick up the skill of procedural instrument flying. And the the army back then, you only had to do um, essentially sort of basic instrument flying. So you're purely 
handling the aircraft without any visual references outside, but you're beholden on air traffic control to tell you exactly where to go and where to fly. Whereas procedure instrument flying, you can fly from beacon to beacon, so you can navigate for yourself, but you've then got to interpret what the needles are telling you in the cockpit. Um, and I, like a, a lot of the army pilots going across, um, found that sort of a bit challenging to get to grips with. So on the yeah on the Chinook Force procedure instrument flying was was, <laughs> was always my nemesis. Um, but once it got in my head and it clicked, then then everything thankfully was okay after that. Obviously, uh, no regrets about leaving the army and going to the Air Force. Everything worked out uh, best for you. Yeah, yeah, it was great fun. It was a. It, Completely different experience. The I don't know what it's like so much with the American military, but you definitely get a sort of a different kind of mentality between the three services. Um, and there were some things that the Air Force that took me a while to um, adjust to, and other things that were were like a um, you know sort of a breath of fresh air. And one thing I've always really admired about them is just how professional they all were when it came to the flying side. Um, and quite, um, it seemed a bit sort of harsh and brutal at first with regards to the, the debriefing after each sortie profile, um, which was more than I was used to in the army. But actually, it's you know a very open process, and actually the the army now has mirrors that and does exactly the, the same sort of thing. Um, but it, yeah, it, it was brilliant. But I think it's a bit like when you maybe find a, a university that you prefer over others. You just find one that's the right fit. And, and for me, the army was always the right fit for me. Um, and so once I had decided with the Air Force that actually, you know, I sort of I wanted to stretch the grey matter a little bit, use my brain a bit more and get more responsibility, that's why I went back to the, the army, um, which, again, I, I have absolutely no regrets for whatsoever. Um, and I've had a great time doing all sorts of things since I've returned. Um, the war in Afghanistan ended, and obviously it was a source of consternation for a lot of veterans here who had had been there. Um, was it the same for people in the British military who had went to Afghanistan? Was it the same for you? Yeah, it's been same sort of reaction over here um, as it has over there. Um, it's been difficult for quite a few people. Um, it's stirred up memories some good, some not so good for a lot of people as well. Um, yeah, it, it's, um, it's been an interesting year, I think. Yeah, uh, to say the least. I mean, personally, would you be willing to share your thoughts on it and how it made you feel? Um, for me, it hasn't necessarily dragged up any memories that haven't always been there. It hasn't made that side of life any sort of more difficult. Um I find it very sad that that we've put in all that time um, and all the, the resources and, and all the manpower to try and help Afghanistan get to a better place and a better footing. And, you know, we would often receive updates of how things had improved. Um, and particularly, you know, sort of from a female perspective, you see how much... Um, to more normality has been restored to some of the Afghan women in that they can walk around unchaperoned. They haven't had to wear a burqa. They can actually start up their own businesses. They can get educated. They can go on to, you know, they have been able to do lots of different things. 
and now that seems to be eroded you know, sort of slowly and slowly you read reports of where that is being taken away from them again um and so naturally as the bbc has certainly been reporting on quite a lot over here i i i you know sort of completely empathized with the afghan women and how i, I guess bleak the future must look for them because it's they i would imagine feel hugely unsafe at the moment for a lot of them yeah so for you, I'm just curious, you mentioned females. As a female, what's it like in the British military as a female? Because we've documented a lot here on the podcast what it's like for American women in the military and how many strides they've had to make. Is, have you guys gone through equally as a challenging path? Uh, I think for some people, it, it, there have been challenges. Um, for me personally, um, I've never really found it that much of an issue. Um, I remember my first squadron, uh, one of the the first females to to go into the Air Corps. Um, and I know some people found it slightly unusual. Um, but I think with, with most environments, as soon as they realise that you are just as capable, you just want to get on with the job the same as everybody else, you know, expect to be treated differently, then they don't treat you differently. Um, and you just become one of the team. Yeah, you so, know, um, I, would, I would just guesstimate, and again, I've talked to a lot of female pilots, it's the great equalizer, right? Because your ability yeah. to fly and diagnose a plane or an aircraft, rather, you know, as far as we talked about earlier, like what went wrong and things that go wrong, there's no real separation between a man and a woman in that in that arena. It's all pretty level. Either you're good at it and you know what to do or you're not um, and you end up being a lawn dart. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like an equalizer in that sense. Yeah, I, I agree. Um so, so for me, it's it's been absolutely fine. Um, there are occasions where I have, you know, often been the only female, um, which can sometimes get, I guess, a little bit alienating when it comes to accommodation. If you're in separate accommodation when you go away to places, um, but uh, but otherwise, it's yeah, it's really not been a factor. Yeah, you um, spent you spent over twenty years of your life uh, in uniform. Uh, you're coming to the end. Uh, how do you kind of you kind how do you kind of know that it was time for you? Uh, I think when I came back to the army from the air force, I kind of had in my head, I'll do about another five years. That would have taken me to about the the twenty year point, and I thought that will probably be round about it. Um, then, you know, sort of things just kept going. Um, but about must be about four years ago. Um, I started to get much more interested into um, physical training. Um, you know, I'd always kept myself fairly fit, but started to have a greater understanding of it and had accidentally ended up on a boot camp, <laughs> which was an interesting experience just before going on tour as well. So I didn't, you know, I just, I saw it as well. That would be a fun holiday where I get to do lots of fitness. Didn't quite realize that I was only going to be on 800 calories a day. Um, but got on really well with the trainer who I'm still friends with. And, but really noticed how much the, the other girls who were there, some of whom were, you know, sort of fairly overweight and had gone there specifically for weight loss, um, how much better it made them feel about themselves in terms of that transformative approach. And, um, that just it has become something since that has really got me enthused. And so I qualified as a personal trainer um, about four years ago. 
um, and that is now what I want to go to when I leave. And and I'm, you know, I wouldn't be interested in taking on someone like yourself who just wants to, you know, get more muscular or, or more ripped. I'm I want to take somebody who has got either no fitness or low fitness, um, or somebody who wants to do that transformative side um, in order to to make them feel good about themselves. I do a few bits and pieces with some friends and family. Um, and that aspect, I, I find that's the reward factor for me to make somebody go from not having a huge amount of self-esteem to suddenly being really proud of um, how far they've come. Um, so, yeah, so I'm slowly sort of building up additional qualifications in that as well, um, doing pre and postnatal stuff and corrective exercise and, and various other bits and pieces. Um, so, so yeah, so that's that's the next step for me. I can't wait. Well, it, st- it stands to reason. I mean, you know, um, piloting seems to be like an instant gratification thing. You know, you hit a button and the aircraft does this and you go that way in the aircraft. You, you're kind of always in control. And so this is a, just another way of you exerting control. This time over, in, in, improving the quality of lives of other people, which is great, Laura. So we, we good yeah. luck in, in, in the next endeavor. I kid, but in all seriousness, no. Uh, best of luck uh, as you finish up your military career and on to uh, the second phase of your life. Uh, certainly, it's been a blast getting to know you and, and hear your story. And we certainly love sharing the stories of our of our partners and, and telling them because, uh, you know, it's, I learn a lot. Every time I talk to somebody from a different military, from a different country's military, I learn a lot. And, and the experiences, uh, although they're similar um, in certain ways, they're very different in others. And I certainly appreciate you uh, being willing to, to spend, spend some time with us and share your story as well. All right. Well, Laurel Nicholson, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. You're welcome. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.